Kinsley Jr.'s grades. Do whatever the fuck you want to. Been the grown-ups and behave like the way a teenager really wants to behave. Wants to behave. Wants to behave. Rebellion, chaos, A quiz. Test your powers of discernment by answering the following question. Through their lyrics, sound, concerts, and lifestyles, today's rock artists encourage their fans to A. Trust and obey their parents. B. Honor the great heroes of past generations. C. Value maturity, modesty, and good etiquette. Or D. Say this music is loud, stupid, excessive, vulgar, and appeals to the basest animal instincts. That's why we play it. I don't know. I think music really, it's supposed to be like a feeling. It's supposed to be, it's usually, usually about like youth culture, go, totally rebelling. Uh, probably a lot of it was rebellion. It has a lot of influence on people and doing your own thing. It's no fun to be good. You got, you know, I mean, you gotta let loose and you gotta do rules, I guess. It's kind of a cliche, but rules are meant to be broken, I guess, is what they say. Rock and roll's always kind of been rebellious. I don't know, it's supposed to bug your parents, I guess. What do your parents think of ITP? They f***ing hate them, but them. In my opinion, rock and roll is more of a rebellious type music than it is uh, stay in school, uh, go get good grades, you know. Uh, I don't know, but I like it. To say that rock celebrates rebellion is like noting the sky's blue. Spin the radio dial or plop down in front of MTV anytime, day or night, and you'll be hit right between the eyes with what one prestigious rock magazine called Rock's essential core, a core of rebellion, sexuality, assertion, and even violence. All the things that have always been unacceptable to a ruling establishment. Once that vigorous, horny-handed core is extracted from rock and roll, you're left with little more than music. As Details Magazine observed after covering one of the many music festivals that have come to dot the summer's landscape, so what did we learn? We learned that old rock and roll devils will strip off their clothes. We learned to shout, F the police. We learned that, should a waft of passion come into our lives, we should just scream, let's get butt naked and blank. There's no need or time to belabor the obvious. We all know or should know that the essence of rock and roll is rebellion. The only reason for rock to exist is to be a soundtrack for the movie of teenage angst and anger. A far more interesting as well as profitable line of investigation 
is to try and understand something of the spiritual implications of this rebellion. Where did it come from? What are its byproducts? Where is it leading us? Is teenage angst and anger just a fact of life like zits and the music just a harmless way of venting aggression? Or is the truth heavier than that? Well, we could spend hours and still not do justice to this issue. But let's try to gain at least some general insights into these important questions by briefly examining a few key dynamics in our culture's love affair with rebellion. Before we get started though, we need to make an important distinction. By rebellion, the Bible means anarchy and lawlessness, not the resistance of good against evil. God doesn't want blind submission to the earthly status quo. Jesus was the ultimate stick in the eye for injustice, indifference, and hypocrisy, and was ultimately hung on a cross for it. And we're called to follow in his footsteps. The 60s and the rock and roll revolution, for example, came about not because of what was righteous about America in the 50s, but because of what was wrong. The love of money and materialism. The superficial and ultimately idolatrous America right or wrong attitude that often passed for true patriotism. Parents handing their kids over to professionals, whether academic or ecclesiastical, to be raised and nurtured platitudes and or silence instead of honest and vigorous discussion on key life issues like sex, politics, and religion. Entrenched sin in attitudes concerning race and equality. A war that was not fought biblically. Good boys can, but good girls don't attitudes about premarital sex. Hypocritical approaches to substance abuse. And worst of all, a cultural, wishy-washy, I'm a Christian because I'm an American kind of spirituality. On and on it goes. True biblical Christianity calls for open prophetic resistance to these types of institutionalized evil. No doubt, if the church had been faithful in this regard, the anarchistic and ultimately occult forms of rebellion that took root in the 60s would have never prospered. So, turning the world right side up is good. Plunging it into do-what-you-want-to-do anarchy is, well, rebellion. With that critical distinction made, let's now look at a few aspects of the rebellious spirit that did take hold in the 60s and what they mean for us today. Number one, rebellion is evil. Though frequently celebrated today as something cool, comical, and even heroic, make no mistake about it, God hates and punishes the sin of rebellion. The evil man seeks only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Furthermore, God views it as a form of occultism, something we'll look at in more detail a bit later. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Lastly, while all rebellion is serious, there's one specific type that especially tears at the fabric of divine order. Honor your father and your mother. 
To rebel against, to dishonor one's parents is so abominable to God that cursing or striking them, as well as other extreme forms of protracted rebellion against parental authority, was a capital offense in Old Testament Israel. Shut up, slut, you're causing too much chaos. Just bend over and take it like a slut, okay, ma? Oh, now he's raping his own mother, abusing a horse, Thornton Coke, and we gave him the Rolling Stone cover? In this context, one shudders to think how God views rapper Eminem's rebelliousness, as well as the millions of fans who feed off his depravities. And there's a million of us just like me, who cuss like me, who just don't give a fuck like me, who dress like me, walk, talk, and act like me. Parents and their authority have become a primary target for the grotesque defiance that courses through the world of rock and roll. Rock and roll is supposed to bring you crazed joy and rebellion for no apparent reason. That's what it started out as music to your parents off. And that's what rock and roll ought to be. Kids ought to come up and just hit you right in the face. I don't mean breaking noses, but I mean with what it is they have to say and dressing different so that adults are going, oh, God, yeah, that's it, you know. Make them throw up. If parents and mom and dad start to like corn, that's when we become not cool. Rock and roll is attitudes. It's, uh, it's all the things that your parents told you don't do, you can do. Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong once advised an audience, when you go home, I want you to eat your parents. I'm not allowed to listen to him when she's home, but, you know, I don't care. They hate it, but I still go, I don't give a what they say. This is rock and roll. Parents always hate rock and roll. It's in custom. If parents like rock and roll, it must suck. Just keep this in mind. They're playing our CDs when you're not home. They're playing my tapes in your own car. And I'm influencing your children. Just don't push your luck. At a Doors concert in Washington, D.C., Jim Morrison's mother, by all accounts a good and decent woman, came to see her son perform. His only acknowledgement was to stare at her as he sang the infamous words to the song, The End, Mother, I Want to Blank You. He never attempted to see or talk to his parents again and usually referred to them as being dead. As Perry Farrell said when asked by Rolling Stone for his secret to happiness, move as far away from your parents as you can, because I feel like I have no parents. I do what makes sense in my head. Number two, rebellion is inane, hypocritical, and doesn't work. Not only is this dishonor your parents attitude among the worst types of sin, it ultimately violates the one law of God that goes so deep into the human conscience 
that almost nobody will deny it philosophically. That is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Isn't it interesting how the rock and roll, do your own thing lifestyle goes out the window when suddenly it's the rock star who's the parent. Madonna, for example, became a star largely through the medium of television and music videos, getting rich selling sex and rebellion to other people's children. Now she has two of her own. And guess what's one of the big rules that governs her household? You've got it. <laughs> she can't watch TV and... Um... She can't watch TV? No. This irony became even more painfully obvious in a feature Rolling Stone did on Ozzy Osbourne. The godfather of hardcore rock and roll rebellion was affectionately seen as a man reduced to trembling like a frightened chihuahua, taking Zola and seeing a therapist once or twice a day, plus afternoon AA meetings, just to fight off the demons of addiction. So much for rebellion as a lifestyle choice. And yet, perhaps it is his relationship with his children that is the most tragic and telling. Glaring down at his brood, Rolling Stone reported, he opens his mouth and says, if you don't shut up, I'll, I'll, he goes silent. His kids look up at him. Well, yes, what will you do? and they start snickering and giggling. For indeed, what dad-like words can he say to them? What is he, Ozzy Osbourne, legendary drug-addled prince of darkness, the very founder of parent-freaking-out heavy metal music going to do? Ozzy blinks a few times. Then, in a small voice, he says, Well, try to be quiet, will you? To the alert observer, these ironies can reach the height of absurdity. We see Everclear at Woodstock chanting the great rock and roll mantra. All right, we got one rule. There are no rules. Have a good time. And then just moments later, ordering people. Okay, you guys got to back up now. Everybody back up. Back up. I think I'll have you repeat it after me and get us all feeling good in here. So follow me, friends. We don't give a shit. We have bands like Metallica embracing the darkness of nihilism and moral relativism. And making light of every kind of sin imaginable, including, ironically, shoplifting. And then getting worked up about people swapping their songs on Napster without paying them royalties. You know what, maybe I wouldn't have to whore myself out if the kids didn't steal my music. Hey Metallica, so what? We have MTV making light of both violence and rebellion against adults in one of their network bumpers. And then broadcasting a PSA against violence Violence, it should be noted, that featured a person being beaten with a club. We have bands like Rage Against the Machine getting their audience to do what they tell them to do by chanting. Yeah. 
Even more surreal is their hardcore advocacy of Marxist socialism, all the while getting rich and enjoying the unparalleled liberties of the very free market economy they condemn. Like other rock artists from time to time, they raise some valid issues, particularly their condemnation of the way our two-party system has been co-opted by big money, special interests, and mushy middle politicians. But what is their alternative? To scream, F you, to advocate unbiblical economic systems that lead to poverty and the loss of freedom everywhere it's been tried? To smash TVs and squat atop a stage prop? What the world needs is a generation that can spread the light, not whine and curse the darkness. And finally, there's the absurdity of an industry that has gotten rich promoting sins that tear at the fabric of society, and then turns around and occasionally tries to raise both money and awareness in order to help fix the very problems that the immorality associated with the music help create in the first place. R. Kelly, for example, has gotten rich singing about and promoting promiscuity, but was then lauded as a hero when he wrote a song to help fight, get this now, a largely promiscuity-based disease. And then there's Janet Jackson, an artist who's often honored as one of the good guys. Her involvement with Colin Powell's America's Promise Foundation was front and center during her Velvet Rope Tour, with some of the proceeds going to help its efforts on behalf of the less fortunate. Help become a mentor for a child. Help keep our kids off the street because they really do need us. Please. But hold on. The facts are in. One of the greatest causes of poverty, poor self-esteem, and disease, the very problems the foundation is attempting to address, is sexual promiscuity and its inevitable byproducts. And what are Jackson's personal life, her music, the concert, and even the concert title filled with? Sexual innuendo, partial nudity, references to genital piercings, sex outside of marriage, bondage themes, etc. This level of cognitive dissonance shot through the roof during the production of her music video, If. Close to 80 pregnant 13 to 17 year olds, or teens who'd recently had babies, were invited down by Jackson. And the video they saw made, you got it. A veritable training film for lust-driven sexuality. And deep down, Miss Jackson knew it. The article continued, there was one individual, though, who was discouraged from dropping by, Katherine Jackson, her mom. The one person that kept running through my head while I was writing these songs was my mother, Jackson says. I told her, some of my movements are very sexy. I'd be embarrassed if you were there. Well, she might have been able to hide her shame temporarily from her mom, but not from God. As Jesus noted when he declared, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Number three, 
Rebellion is fundamentally occultic. We saw earlier that rebellion in God's sight is as the sin of witchcraft. God's wisdom in defining rebellion in this way makes perfect sense when one understands the basic difference between the Judeo-Christian cosmology and the one generally embraced by the occult and Eastern traditions. The difference can be summed up by contrasting two words. Cosmos versus chaos. The Greek word cosmos, a word that is front and center throughout the New Testament, as well as in the Greek translation of the Old, carries within it the suggestion of order and harmony. In a nutshell, the Bible presents a universe, a cosmos, created by God out of nothing and infused with a symmetry that literally, we now know, defies our comprehension in both its complexity and beauty. Guided by God's superintending hand, the pinnacle of this cosmos was and is this planet with its inhabitants. And it's here where an interesting distinction is made. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Earth's initial formlessness, or unfurnished state, is quite different from the tailored order that the word cosmos suggests. But God wasn't done yet, as, step by step, the divine paradigm began to unfold. The Almighty spoke, and light divided darkness, land came from the sea, life from inanimate matter, etc. The earth was beautifully furnished, and the stage set for the drama of human existence. After creating man in his own image, God took an area of land bounded by water and fashioned Eden an incubator of sorts as well as a pattern for future expansion. This garden was adorned with everything man needed as he was prepared for the task at hand to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. In other words, to make it all as ordered, as beautifully furnished as the garden paradise that was home. Well, most of us know what happened next. Man blew it and paradise was lost. But that's not the end of the story. The Bible's essential message is the account of God's elaborate and awesomely sacrificial efforts to redeem mankind while remaining true to Himself and His righteous standards of justice. And so, through the cross, we were ransomed from the penalty of sin and re-empowered, divinely enabled to get the original job done to go into all the world and fill it with His glory, to disciple individuals and ultimately nations, to bring life from death, light to darkness, ever-increasing order and harmony from the chaos of sin and destruction. The occult world, on the other hand, in this as well as in most everything else, seeks to reverse the divine order. Rather than God, chaos or emptiness is seen as the ultimate ground of being, and the material world is viewed as either illusory, maya in the Hindu lexicon, or as in the Gnostic tradition, fallen from the true realm of the spirit. Amid this quantum cloud of uncertainty, God and His will become either unknowable or subject to the whims of human imagination. Man is born to do what he wills, and chaos has become his midwife. All creation begins in chaos, 
progresses in chaos and ends in chaos. The phenomenon of being is this self-synergizing engine of an out of chaos, through creativity, into the imagination, back into chaos, out into creativity, uh, so forth and so on. See, quantum physics gave us the real term to describe what happens when you take a, a, a powerful psychedelic plant or drug. Chaos. I like the idea of surfing waves of chaos. I'm surfing the chaos, riding the wave in my mind. We're confused. I'm so f***ing confused, man. It's all chaos. Please, man, I'm surfing the chaos. You definitely generate an atmosphere or a mood which might be characterized as rebellion, chaos, disorder, and activity that appears to have no meaning. They have figured out the formula for chaos. Chaos is a beautiful thing. And so the clear line between light and darkness, life and death, meaning and meaninglessness presents itself. On the one hand, a cosmos created and sustained by the Almighty, suffused with design and meaning. And our purpose in this cosmos? Well, to love God and submit to His will, to glorify and enjoy the Lord, to grow in grace and become more and more like Him in our character, and in the way we think, and then to furnish the void, to in a sense colonize the chaos, bringing God's order where there's disorder, discovering and cherishing all that is true, good, and beautiful. And then, on the other hand, there's the embrace of chaos and a descent into the void. For those with the epistemological integrity to embrace the fullness of this horror, well, as more than one rock and roll icon has stated, Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Because nothing is true. Everything is permitted. And this is why rebellion is a form of occultism. God's order and rule, his cosmos, is rejected. People begin to worship, to derive meaning from the creation rather than the creator, the very foundation of witchcraft. People rebel, concoct their own so-called truths, make up their own rules. They begin to do what they want. 
Most dabble in their defiance, afraid to fully embrace the horror of this nothing's true, everything's permitted worldview. But dabbling with rebellion is like dabbling with theft. You may just be stealing candy, but you're still a thief. Just so, any time we choose our will over God's, chaos over cosmos, we are rebels and moving in precisely the wrong direction. Jesus understood this as he described the spiritual war to which all of his followers have been called and then warned what it would take to plunder the kingdom of darkness rather than be plundered by it. He that is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me, who does not make a conscious effort to press into Christ, scatters. Everywhere in today's music and popular culture, people are scattering, allowing spiritual entropy to drag them into the void. Artists proudly admit that they don't write real songs, they produce chaos. Decay, ugliness, death, dissonance, pain, darkness, despair, and meaninglessness abound in popular culture. Laziness, disrespect, rioting, stupidity, irresponsibility, and perpetual adolescence are everywhere celebrated. Think about it, we'd be better off leaders of the occult revival, as well as artists who hated Christ and sought inspiration from nihilism and the derangement of all the senses, serve as patron saints for rock's most influential musicians. So tell me why. From the annihilation of every sexual taboo, to the now fashionable rejection of Christianity in favor of Eastern and occult religions, evidence of popular music and culture's embrace of chaos over cosmos is practically endless. Rebellion qua witchcraft has all but become the default religion of Western society. Number four, rebellion leads to death. Jesus declared that true discernment, understanding what's really going on beneath the surface of something, is aided by examining its fruit, what it produces. Elsewhere, the scriptures declare, he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. The wisdom spoken of here is a personification of God and involves an absolute commitment to do what he says. Cosmos, not chaos. Submission, not rebellion. This is the God who is, not the great mush God concocted by our postmodern follow-your-heart imaginations. And this God declares, warns, that one of the fruits of those who hate this wisdom is death. Well, once again, the sky's blue. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, 
What about popular music's ever-increasing fascination, even obsession with violence, destruction, and death? While certainly not the sole or even primary cause, why does this music, and specifically songs about nihilism and suicide, become the soundtrack of choice for young people who either take their lives or surrender to the tyranny of despair and hate? This is a letter um, written in blood by a 12-year-old from Los Angeles, California, saying uh, he's on Valium and liquor. This is from a 12-year-old. Is the violence and even death that has plagued so many concerts and music festivals a mere coincidence? I remember this one night when Exodus played and it was like a really violent night and this one guy, like Paul Bela said, I want to see a dead poser and a bunch of, you know, Exodus kids just ran out and found this guy with spandex and slashed his throat, you know. Oh, yeah. It was hilarious. And perhaps most significantly, what about the incredibly heavy toll it has taken on the artists themselves? The rock and roll lifestyle is among the most dangerous in the world, not only in the percentage of deaths, but in the pathetic way so many die. Suicide, AIDS, drug and alcohol abuse, violence, heroin overdoses, even asphyxiation in one's own vomit. Take as just one example, an artist whose life and death, while not as well known as other rock catastrophes, serves as one of the best illustrations of just how lethal rebellion can be. A gifted, intelligent, and beautiful woman, Nico fell headlong into the chaos of rock and roll when Andy Warhol tapped her for the Velvet Underground. The more you look at the same exact thing, pop artist Warhol had once explained, the more the meaning goes away, and the better and emptier you feel. Well, Nico became a committed disciple of this doctrine of meaninglessness, declaring, I'm a nihilist, so I like destruction. Nihilism seemed to be the most suitable religion. Through both music and sexual relationships, Nico shared her faith. Punk's godfather, Iggy Pop, for example, credits her with helping him get totally into corruption. This particular attitude that I have all stems from Nico, he told one interviewer. I was a skinny, little, naive brat, and she taught me. You are not full of the poison, she said. This is not right. How can you perform when you are not full of the poison? I will help fill you with poison. Otherwise, you have nothing. We do not want to see a person on stage. We want to see a performance. And the poison is the essence of the performer. Well, eventually the poison took its toll. Drugs became her primary sacrament, reaching a depth where eventually she turned her own teenage son onto heroin. Chaos destroyed cosmos, and moral absolutes were among its victims. I don't have any limits, you know. 
Without truth, even art was turned on its head as ugliness became her preferred aesthetic. She was almost proud of the fact that her teeth were rotten and her hair was gray and, you know, her skin was bad and she had needle tracks all over. I mean, she was, she liked that. That was her aesthetic. She died alone and the nihilistic wasteland she helped pioneer. A world where ugliness and darkness have become fashion statements. Where the divide between good and evil is blurred and ever-changing. Where death and existential despair are viewed as somehow attractive, brave, and profound. And where the derangement of the senses is the key to creativity. Her spiritual children barely took note of her passing. Of course, by the grace and forbearance of God, far more people live on than die young. But they, as well as each of us, will still one day die. And after death, the scriptures declare, comes judgment. Those who have rejected God will in turn be rejected. And it's this death what the Bible calls the second one, the final reward for all who have chosen rebellion over obedience. That is the only death with which each of us should be ultimately concerned. As Jesus warned, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Number five, rebellion, like hell, is never satisfied. Good, like God, has no limits. There are always new vistas of virtue to explore and develop. But Rock's deliberate identification with rebellion and chaos has created a very real and pathetically ironic dilemma. When the limbo bar of cultural standards keeps getting dropped, how low can you go before you fall on your back? How does one fly their rock and roll freak flag high when it's the Woodstock generation that's now the status quo? At what point does rebellion start to either play like a cartoon or stink of unrefined evil? 40 and 50-somethings, for example, can remember when the F word was shocking. And even the idea that Jim Morrison might have flashed an audience in Miami led to a felony arrest and sparked a national scandal. And today? Well, entire concerts are performed naked, and obscenities are so common that if they were somehow banned, hundreds of artists would have a hard time fashioning a coherent sentence. So what's a poor rebel to do? They, they cut up each other on stage. Um, the, the lead singer has a, a four-foot-long that he masturbates and sprays Sing about raping the Virgin Mary and torturing Christians? Rub animal entrails all over their body. Rap about mutilating women or having sex with underage girls. Commit unspeakable acts on stage. Why, Gigi, did you feel a need to, uh, to defecate in front of a live audience? Well... My body is the rock and roll temple, and 
My flesh, blood, and body fluids are a communion to the people. And there are no limits and no laws, and I'll break down every barrier put in front of me till the day I die. The pathetic absurdity of this cycle of satanic one-upmanship is nowhere more obvious than in the life and music of the platinum-selling rockers from Iowa, Slipknot. No doubt without fully realizing it, guitarist Mick Thompson commented on the progressive desensitization that made his band's particular brand of rebellion and nihilism a foregone conclusion. I used to watch a lot of gore movies, lots of true death videos. And at first, sure, I was disturbed by what I saw. But after a while, I became numb to it. With hard music, it's the same way. People listen to corn, and now they want something even harder. It's like a drug. And their drug? Basically nine people working out every poison that ever infected them in their life and putting it on tape. And I hope they get a positive message for them, you know, where they don't have to answer to anything or anyone. This song is your new national Drummer and group visionary Sean Crahan says the band's mission is to spread the sickness, which includes not only the raw rebellion of their lyrics and music, but live performances that feature band members hitting themselves and each other, drinking urine, smearing feces, throwing up into their masks, starting fires, and in general embracing chaos with a nihilistic vigor that would stun the Voodans of Haiti. And the effect on their audience? Every show, Crahan told Rolling Stone, I've got some kid out there who's hitting himself just like me. His knuckles are bloody, his eyes are black. I'll look in his eyes and see that he's in some other place. It's a heavy duty responsibility. So it's only rock and roll, huh? As incredible as all this is, there's an important footnote. Most of the band came from intact homes and led wholesome American lives. Hi, Mom. Look at me. They live in the richest, most free nation the world has ever seen. Crahan admits, I have a beautiful wife and three healthy children. I'm happy, man. And then goes on to say, but when I'm on stage, it's effing on. I'll kill people. I look into the eye of the abyss every day of my life because my time here, it's nothing, man. Well, Crahan and millions of other artists and individuals feel this way because they've made a choice. They've embraced the spirit of our age, preferring chaos over cosmos, their will over God's. And now, as they stare into the pit of nothingness, this other place Crahan sees in the eyes of his fans, the anger, pain, and emptiness they experience are not only the result of a self-fulfilling prophecy, they are the emanations of the satanic reality that lies waiting, like a black hole, in the bottom of the abyss. Number six, rebellion doesn't help, it hurts. Whether it's a song brimming with rage or the semi-controlled violence of a mosh pit, the typical argument for rebellion in music 
or many other art forms for that matter, is that it's cathartic, that it provides a healthy release for pent-up anger or pain. And for some, this catharsis can take on the form of ritual, even something religious. Now gather yourselves. All your hate, all your anger, everything that is black and loathsome that dwells inside of you. I want you to pour that into me! And while the vast majority of songs fall into the rebellion for the sake of rebellion category, there is the occasional song that does attempt to address the real trauma people experience in a fallen world. Jonathan Davis of Corn, for example, has powerfully expressed the horror of sexual abuse. And Papa Roach, among other bands, has attempted to exorcise some of the pain that results from divorce and broken homes. No doubt people who have undergone either trauma can experience a measure of relief from these songs, the sense that they're not alone, that someone else has been through it and understands the pain. Screaming, moshing, even cutting oneself can provide, like the use of alcohol or drugs, some temporary relief. And if you're a rock star, it can also make you rich. But the root problem is never really addressed, and as we saw with Slipknot a moment ago, the nihilistic rage and despair inevitably become a self-fulfilling prophecy, producing even more poison and a sense of hopelessness. In this context, the band Against All Authority asks an important question in a song about a friend who committed suicide. What Toby ultimately needed was God and his grace. What he got instead was a bottle of liquor and a blind friend's support as he skated down the ramp of rebellion and into the abyss of chaos. And the only thing to be found there, whether now or later, is death. Every rebellious rock and roll band needs to stare into Toby's eyes and in the eyes of millions of others just like him. To understand the bigger spiritual picture here, let's close with an analogy. As we've already seen, the Bible makes it very clear that a root problem is sin, both those we commit and the ones that are committed against us. And let me say something here. Look, in many ways, the wheels have come off our culture, and I know that many of you watching have been run over by them. Divorce, rejection, sexual abuse, violence, the lack of love and encouragement, on and on. It's a hurting world. But here's the bigger problem. Each of us is like a radio, designed by God to receive the true signal of His light and love. But because of sin and our innate drive to do our own thing, to possess this radio on our own terms, 
we've lost this ultimate signal. It never stopped broadcasting. It's just that we've stopped receiving the frequency. And so we begin looking for our own answers, for our own redemption, spinning the dial, looking for a signal that we like that seems to fit our specific needs or personality, something that we can dance to. Well, rebels like rebellious music, those with anger, angry, the lustful, lusty, and those who hurt, well, music by people who hurt. For someone who's lost and alone, these stations on the dial can provide a measure of comfort and temporal satisfaction, but ultimately each is just a broadcast tower of Babel, a soul-numbing distraction to keep the herd moving on down the highway to hell. God has the answer, a true signal to save us, heal us, and lead us home. But we've got to give Him control over our radio and allow Him to reset the frequency. Obedience, not rebellion, is the beginning of wisdom. And Christ's blood, not our sweat or tears, is the only way out of the valley of death.